Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your great love for us. Um, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word here and we, we open to this book of Ruth, God, I pray that you would direct us, uh, that you would teach us, show us who you are, and show us how to respond to you. Um, so, Father, today I pray that, uh, that you would move. Um, Lord, I, I know I've already said this once, but just yesterday, just yesterday, I was thinking about, about how your word says that, that Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Um, and we tend to think of church as a place where we come and there's this gentle spirit, Lord. But I pray that you would change our understanding. And, we would, and while there is that gentle spirit, there is power, Lord. And I pray that your power would be on display today, that we would know you more, that we would just really experience your presence in a very real way. So today, Lord, I pray that you would move amongst us, that you would guide us through your word, and that you would teach us who you are. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I already kind of teased it, but if you want to open to the book of Ruth, that's where we're going to be today. Um, so, Ruth chapter 1 is going to be our text for the day. But before we get that, before we get there, I, I want to ask you all, and this is a real interactive question. You all can actually talk in church. Um, do you all have a favorite book of the Bible? All right. What's your favorite book of the Bible, Steve? Good, good. Anybody else got a favorite book? We'll come back to that one. Yeah, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Esther, okay. Anybody else? What's your favorite books? I want. I really want to know. Go ahead. First John. First John, okay. Go ahead. Galatians. Galatians. Go ahead, Jessa. Esther. Esther also. All right. Y'all, don't worry. Nobody's gonna get after you for saying you have a favorite book of the Bible. I don't think you're gonna get zapped or anything. It's okay. Look, so um, for those of you who remember uh, back in 2020, um, y'all remember COVID? <laughs> so, <laughs> I know it's still not gone. Um, so back in 2020, Will Certain and I started doing this thing whenever we couldn't meet together. We started doing this uh, thing where we, we called it Pastor Talk, where we got together and we just picked a topic and we had a good time just kind of going back and forth talking about different things. Um, and one of the things that we did was we talked about our favorite books of the Bible. Um, we also talked about our least favorite books of the Bible, not in a way that we're like, oh, that book isn't good, don't read it. No, that's not our point. All of, all of the Bible is inspired by God and it's all profitable. You should read it all. And I hope you know, even our least favorite books, we were like, we still love God's word. Um, so please don't be like, oh, Jared says he hates the Bible. That's not what I'm saying. Um, but we talked about our favorite books, our least favorite books. Um, and there are some books that I tend to struggle with as I read, and I just have a hard time with them. Usually the major prophets, I really struggle with Isaiah and Ezekiel. And I, I just struggle as I go through those, so I'll just, I'll just own that. But whenever we started talking about our favorite books of the Bible, one that came up for me several times as we talked about this was the book of Judges. Um, so Steve and I may have had that conversation. He might have known where this was going. Is it really your favorite, though? Okay. All right, well, that's good. That's good. So I love the book of Judges, though. Um, does anybody else just love the book of Judges? You can raise your hand. It's okay. Some of you? Okay. Some of you are like, not so much. Not so much. Okay, see, the book of Judges is this wild and crazy book in the Old Testament where the people of God rebel against God. God delivers them over to their enemies. And then, at some point, they wake up and they say... Wow, we have rebelled against God. And then God raises up a judge and wins his people back. And this happens several times. You can just wash, rinse, repeat. It's the same thing again and again and again as you go through the book of Judges. It's the same thing over and over again. People rebel. God delivers them over to their enemies. They cry out to God. God sends a judge to bring them back. And it happens several times. Okay, But throughout this, some of the most unexpected things happen. Like crazy things. And I had to practice a biblical concept this week. Um, you know, the book of Proverbs says that there's safety in a multitude of counselors. Um, and as I was preparing this sermon, I really wanted to go find just a few verses to pull from the book of Judges and show you how brutal the book of Judges was. Um, but I spoke with my wife. I sent Steve a message. And I was like, hey, I think I should put these, these quotes in here. And they're like, well, yeah. But it's kind of gory. Like, are we doing it just for shock factor? In a little bit. But, uh, so I'm not going to read them out of the, just straight out. I'm just going to tell you that the book of Judges, it plays out kind of like a Quentin Tarantino film. If you don't know who he is, all of his films are bloody and gory and action everywhere. And it's just 
Like, crazy stuff. So, it plays out like these (laughs) brutal action films. And some of these quotes involve death. Some of them involve just gross stuff. But I'm just going to keep on going. You get the point. If you ever see Samson going around killing a thousand men with the jawbone of a donkey, you get the point. Um, Like, the book is brutal. And crazy things are described here. But really, the point I want to get at, even by reading those, was going to be the same thing, whether I read them or not. The book of Judges, the book of Judges is this brutal time known for its lawlessness. That's what it was known for. The very last verse of the book of Judges, the very last verse, Judges 21-25, it tells us pretty much everything we need to know about the book. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did whatever seemed right to him. Or you may remember that a different way. Everyone did what seemed right in his own eyes. Y'all ever heard that? Um, And that's just as pertinent today as it was in the time of the judges. But what we find is this lawlessness where everyone did what they thought was right, what seemed right to them. And the reason I say that's kind of like today, we talked last week in our Sunday school class about this concept of postmodernism. Are you all familiar with the idea of postmodernism? Some of you, some of you are like, Jared, what in the world is that? Postmodernism is this line of thought that there is no absolute truth, which I find a little humorous because by saying there is no absolute truth, you're making an absolute claim. So how do I know that's true if there is no absolute? Anyway. Y'all get the point. So there is no, you have your truth, I have my truth, do what seems right to you, I'll do what seems right to me, everybody's happy and we're all good, right? Well, that's not really how that works because what happens whenever my truth inflicts some, or, or contradicts your truth? What happens whenever we have some kind of problem there? Is there absolute truth? And just so you know, the Bible is our absolute. Like, we look to the Bible for the answers. We look there. But here, we find the time of the judges where everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Now, we're not going to the book of Judges today. We're going to the book of Ruth. But the reason I wanted to talk about the brutality, uh, about the lawlessness, about everyone doing what was right in their own eyes and this rebellion against God, the reason we need to bring that up is because that's the backdrop for the book of Ruth. Like, the very first line in Ruth, is that it was the time of the judges. Now, where exactly Ruth falls in the timeline of the judges, we don't know. But we know it's in the time of the judges. This brutality where people are rebelling against God. God's delivering them over. God raises up judges to bring his people back. This is the time. That's the backdrop for Ruth. See, and it's here, here that we find one of these families. We focus in on one family who has rebelled against God who has fled from God. And God, God delivers them over. Um, and that's what we're going to see today, is that God really did deliver them over. The difference is, in Ruth, it's not a judge who's raised up, it's a Moabite woman who's raised up to deliver God's people. Um, now, today, today we're going to start with the bad news. So if you were coming in just hoping for everything to be hunky-dory and happy, well... Uh, he, he went the wrong place. Um, so, sorry about the bad news. Today we, gotta, t- today, we have to start with the bad news. Today, we have to start with the disbelief or the rebellion. That's where we're going to start today. Um, and I, really, what I want to do is I want to show you the results of this rebellion. And just so you know, I'm not just talking about the rebellion of these people in, in our narrative today. I'm talking about our rebellion against God. Because this plays out the same way when we rebel against God. So what I want to do today is I want to look at the disbelief. I want to look at the rebellion we find in today's text. And I want to show you the results of our rebellion against God. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look more and more at the solution. So just stay with me if you're like, Jared, you are like a doom and gloom preacher. Stay with me. And really, even today's text, I think we're, hopefully we can bring it back and we're going to end on a positive note because I think God's word does that. Um, but we need to see the results of our disbelief. So would you all stand with me? We're going to read the entire first chapter of Ruth today. <clears throat> and then we'll look at these results of the disbelief. So Ruth chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, it says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem. In Judah, with his wife and two sons, to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives, one named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. 
After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without a husband. She and her daughters-in-law set out to return from the territory of Moab because she had, heard it, she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. She left the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Naomi said to them, Each of you go back to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. May the Lord grant each of you in or may the may the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. She kissed them and they wept loudly. They said to her, "We insist on returning with you to your people." But Naomi replied, "Return home, my daughters. Why do you want to go with me? Am I able to have more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Go on, for I am too old to have another husband." Even if I thought there was still hope for me to have a husband tonight and to bear sons, would you be willing to wait for them to grow up? Would you restrain yourselves from remarrying? No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. Again, they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Naomi said, look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Follow your sister-in-law. But Ruth replied, Don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me and do so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival, and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, she answered, for the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth, the Moabitess, They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Thank God for his word. You may be seated. This first chapter of Ruth starts out with rebellion. And I think that what we see here are the results of our disbelief in in God. Um, Now, an important note. We need to remember that Elimelech and Naomi, they are a part of the people of God. Right? Right? They were living in Judah. They were a part of the covenant people at this time. They were living there amongst them, and they rebelled. Now, I think that's important because we can look at this, and we can just see the results of disbelief in the life of those people who just don't believe, who are not a part of the kingdom. But these are a part of the covenant people of God. And they rebelled, and we see the results of their disbelief. So whenever you start thinking, well, does this really apply to me whenever I know Jesus and whenever he is my Savior? Yes, I still think we have those moments of disbelief where we rebel against God. Even if we have faith in Jesus, even if we've trusted him, we have a tendency to look around at our circumstances and rebel against God even then. And oftentimes we see the results of that play out just like they do here in Ruth. So I want to look at the results of disbelief in the life of God's people. The first thing we find, disbelief leads to disaster. This disbelief or unfaithfulness, it leads to disaster, right? So here we are in the time of the judges, and and the end of verse 1, we find that there is famine in the land, and it drives Elimelech and his family to go to Moab. And as I read this, I thought, should Elimelech have gone to Moab? Should he have gone to Moab? Um, I'm going to say that the answer is no. No, he should not. Instead, he should have trusted in God. He knew the stories of what happened with Moses and the rest of the Israelites in the wilderness. God provided food for them even out in the wilderness. Could God provide for the Israelites in the promised land? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely he could have. And what we're going to find is walking away from the people of God is the same as walking away from God. And we're going to see that connection here in just a little bit. So here they walk away from God's people in the promised land. And really, Elimelech should have trusted God. I mean, even his name in Hebrew. If we look at the meaning of his name, it means that God or my God is king. 
So this guy who is named, my God is king, is not displaying trust in that God who is king. And he walks away with his wife, his wife Naomi, which in Hebrew means sweetness or pleasant. Again, going to be important here in just a moment. And they take their two sons, Malon and Kilion, and we're going to get to their names in just a moment. And they go to Moab. And we find that they were Ephrathites. They were Ephrathites. In Hebrew, now all these words are important, okay? Just understand, I'm going to go through a whole bunch of words. If you're taking notes, stay with me. Ephrathites, the word means fruitful. These were fruitful people leaving because of famine. You catch the irony there, right? Okay, so these fruitful people are leaving the promised land because of a famine. And really, they're leaving this place called Bethlehem, which means house of bread. They're leaving the house, these fruitful people, leaving the house of bread to go to a foreign nation away from God's provision. That's what they're doing here. And they leave, and they find pretty much exactly what they're asking for because their children's name, these names of these two sons, Malon and Kilion. Malon sounds like the Hebrew word for sickness, and Kilion literally means death or destruction. So they go to Moab, and they find death and destruction. We shouldn't be surprised at this point. Okay? Now, why did they go? Well, really, it wasn't too far. We've got a map here. Um, And if you look, here's where they were. Bethlehem is where they started, and they go around the Dead Sea over to Moab. It's really not all that far from home. It's a few miles. So they're not going all that far from home, but they are leaving the house of bread to go to this other place. If we just leave that up there for a minute, and we'll actually, we're going to jump away from it in just a minute, and we'll come back to it. I didn't prepare Steve for any of that. But anyway, um, so Elimelech here in verse 3, he's identified as Naomi's husband, which, by the way, should be an indication of who the story is going to follow. Um, whenever it says Elimelech, Naomi's husband, really what we're going to find is that Naomi is the main character here, at least in this first chapter. She's the one doing the majority of the action, because very rarely, in, especially in ancient literature, you're going to find a, a man identified or linked to his wife. Instead, typically what you're going to find is it would be something like Naomi, the wife of Elimelech. Uh, a woman would typically be identified by her husband rather than the other way around. So we should already be clued in that this is going to follow this woman, Naomi. We should be clued in. This is about what happens with Naomi. But Elimelech, in verse 3, he dies in Moab. And then in verse 4, her sons do something unthinkable. They do something unthinkable. And they marry Moabite women. Okay. Now, why is this so unthinkable? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 through 4, I believe we have this one. It says, you must not intermarry with them. And you must not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Okay, do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Now, what did these sons just do? They took their daughters for themselves. So now they're intermarrying with people that they've been expressly commanded not to intermarry with. Okay, so they are rebelling against God, even with who they're marrying. Now, um, this isn't the main point, but I do think that this is worth pointing out because we have, uh, we have some single people in the room um, who are unmarried. And if you are married, like, don't think this doesn't apply to you. You either might have kids, you will have kids, you have grandkids, there are people that you know, you have friends, whatever. Um, If you are not married and you are thinking someday you would like to be married, uh, what's criteria number one? Criteria number one must be, do they love Jesus as much or more than I do? And if not, find someone else. Like, that's, I'm looking at you all. Like, I'm not going to try to hide it. Like, teens, there you go. Um, if, if you're looking for someone to marry, if you're looking for a potential spouse, find someone who loves Jesus as much as you or more. And if they don't, find someone else. Like, it's better to remain single than to intermarry with a non-believer, with somebody who does not know the covenant. It's better to remain single. Okay? So, that's what I want to encourage you with there. End of sermon. I'm just kidding. Um, But what we find here is that these marriages to these Moabite women, they are conceived in sin. It was sinful to marry these women because it was rebellion against God. Okay? So they do it anyway. And if you want an example of how poorly this winds up, go to 1 Kings chapter 11, 
chapter 11, verses 7 through 11, what you're going to find is Solomon does this very thing. He intermarries with, with foreign wives, and what happens? He winds up building altars to pagan gods, okay? It works out poorly. What happens whenever you intermarry with non-believers, whenever you bind yourself to a non-believer? Sometimes it works out positively, but the vast majority of the time what happens is it slowly lures you away from God and faithfulness to him. So what we need is to be faithful to him and find somebody who loves Jesus as much as you, if not more. So there we go. Okay, so we find these wives that they married, though. And wife number one is named Orpah. Orpah, her name means handful of water, just a handful of water. Okay? That's her name. Now, we should get an idea of what's going to happen with this story whenever we find Ruth's name. Uh, Ruth's name means saturated or drenched. Okay, so you got a handful of water over here. you got totally saturated or drenched on the other side. So, you all figuring out what's going to happen now? You all know the story? All right. So, they intermarry with these wives, this handful of water, and then the other one's saturated. And they live there for 10 years. Can we go back to that map? So, they're not very far from home. But they made this trip thinking, well, you know what? There's famine over here. Let's just move on over here to Moab for just a little while because there's food there. We'll just stay there for a little while until the famine's over, right? I mean, how long do you really expect a famine? Like, if we had a bad year here, okay, well, next year it'll turn around. They were there for a decade. Ten years. They lived away from God's covenant people. So what was, may have been intended to be a short stay turned into a decade. And then in verse 5, both Malon and Kilion, they also died. And the woman Naomi uh, was left with her, without her two sons and without her husband. Given the societal views of women, this is a big problem. Because at this time, women didn't have rights. Their rights were tied to their husband. Well, that's a problem because her husband is now gone. Well, then her rights would have been tied to her sons, which is why it was such a big deal to bear sons. Well, now her sons are gone. So here's this woman with no hope, and I hope that you feel the weight of this despair because um, she has nothing. She's lost everything at this point, has nothing left, living away from God's covenant people, away from the promised land in this foreign place with a dead husband and two dead sons. Um, Warren Wearsby, I think he captures it well. He says, all that remained were three lonely widows and three Jewish graves in a heathen land. That's all that was left for Naomi. But how often do we look around and we think, why in the world is this happening to me? Why does it seem like all I can see is death and destruction? Why is it that all I'm facing is the heaviness, the burden of life? Why can't I just catch a break? Um... But when we look, whenever we truly look, I think oftentimes what we're going to see is that we are facing the consequences of our own sinfulness. Now, is that always the case? No. The truth is we live in a fallen and a broken world. So, yes, we are dealing with the consequences of sin. It's not always our own. But I think if we're being honest, a lot of times it is. We deal with the consequences of our own disbelief, our own unfaithfulness. Whenever we choose to follow our fear rather than faith, which is what they did, right? That's what they did. They were afraid because there was a famine here, so they ran. They followed their fear rather than faith in an almighty God who could provide for them. And what it led to was death and destruction. Now, practically, how does that play out in our lives? Well, I think that there are two areas that this plays out the most. And I just want to touch on both of these briefly. Um, The way that I think we most often see this play out is our marriage and our families. I think that's where we most often see this play out. In our marriages, whenever we don't remain faithful to what God said about our marriages and how we are to be bound to our spouses above all else. Like, we are to be bound to our spouses. But oftentimes, I'm afraid, we place our jobs, we place our hobbies, whatever else, ahead of loving our spouse the way that God has told us to. And I think that we see the result of it. I think we see death and destruction within our marriages. Um, And it's painful. And then I think we see the result of disbelief or unfaithfulness in our families. Whenever we place making money ahead of discipling our kids, uh, look... Look, I'm reminded of this again and again, that my task as a father is not to make my children happy. And I know I say this all the time, but I don't think we get it still. Like, our job is not to make our children happy or even that our children are successful, like, in career paths or whatever. That's not our primary job as parents. 
Our job as parents, according to what God's word says, is to sharpen our children, launch them out, and do, like, do damage to the enemy. Like, make way for the kingdom. That's what we're supposed to do with our kids. Um, just several times recently, I've been talking to people about this, this very thing. Like, in Proverbs, it refers, to, uh, it refers to children as arrows in a quiver, right? And if you think about it like that, our children are weapons that we should sharpen and prepare to launch at the enemy, okay? Um, and I remember I've been talking to people, and the same, same family comes up. They have several adult children now, and this same family, I'm not going to talk about who they are because I don't want to puff them up, but I, the same family, like their kids have been sharpened, and they were launched in the world, and I believe that they are doing destruction to the enemy. Like they are dealing blows, and it is awesome to watch whenever a family has devoted themselves to raising up godly children who want to go out and serve the kingdom. It is awesome to watch. Parents, your job is to raise up kids to go out. And whenever we're faithful to what God has shown us about raising kids, it's totally different. But when we are unfaithful, we see the degradation of the family. And we see the destruction that it leads to. Are we going to be faithful to what God has said? And I think that we see the disaster that this brings in our marriages and our families. I think it's where we see it the most often. Now, are there other areas? Yes, absolutely. But given where we stand in the world today, I think that these are the two most glaring places where we see the destruction of our own disbelief, of our own unfaithfulness, going by what the world says is most important rather than what God says is most important. So even whenever our disbelief doesn't lead to literal physical death, it will lead to death and destruction, sometimes slowly and in ways that aren't obvious at first, but it will lead to death and destruction. I was talking to a brother not all that long ago who was talking about a family member who had been um, unfaithful in one way or another, and I don't need to get into details. Um, but he said something that caught my attention. He said, I can really just see the death that's, result, that's come as a result of this un- unfaithfulness. And it wasn't talking about a literal physical death, but he was talking about the loss of a relationship. He was talking about the death and destruction it brought it was within a marriage. So, yeah, absolutely, I think that plays out where we see disaster as a result of our disbelief or our unfaithfulness. That's the first thing we find in God's Word today. Second, disbelief leads to isolation. Disbelief leads to isolation. Verse 6, they started out to leave to Moab because they heard that the Lord had paid attention to his people's needs by providing food for them. So they're in Moab. They hear, okay, well, there's food back in Judah now, so let's head on back. Now, um, I don't know if this is worth sharing or not, but I'm going to do it anyway. This is one of only two actions that are ascribed to God by the narrator. Um, and I think that's important because both the times that God, is, or that God acts according to the narrator, it's positive. The last time we're going to see in chapter 4, whenever God raises up a son, and that's going to be really important when we start talking about salvation. Um, but here, this is one of two times that God acts according to the narrator. Now, Naomi's going to blame God for some things and say God is acting, um, but we'll get to that too. Um, anyway, one of two times that the narrator says this is what God does. Verse 7, though, Naomi left with her daughters-in-law and heads back towards Judah. And again, both daughters-in-law are willingly going with Naomi. Both daughters-in-law are willingly going with Naomi back to the land of Judah. Verse 8, Naomi attempts to send them both back to their mother's homes, and she even does so seemingly with their good in mind. And she seems to be genuinely appreciative of them, right? I mean, the last part of verse 8, she says, May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. And this word kindness here, it's the Hebrew word hesed. And this word hesed, the most common translation of this word is faithful love. So she's saying, may God show you faithful love. May the God, Yahweh, may the Lord show you faithful love. Just like you've shown to my sons and you've shown to me. He says, I hope that the Lord blesses you. And she seems to be genuinely thankful for them and the love and the devotion that they've shown to her. She seems to be grateful for that. See, Naomi recognizes it. Yet because of her position, she tries to send them away. She recognized how devoted, how much they loved her, but she still tries to send them away. Verse 9, she wishes them well as they search for a new husband, kisses them, and weeps with them. And one thing that I want to point out is that this is clearly difficult for Naomi. This is a struggle for Naomi. I mean, verse 10 tells us that both daughters-in-law, they're willing to go. Not only are they willing to go, they insist on going with her. Like, they're saying, we want to go with you. We're going, but Naomi, again, in verse 11, she says no, and she uses a very practical argument, given the societal standing of women. She says, I can't bear any more sons. Besides, I don't have a husband. 
And I'm too old to have another husband, so you might as well go back. And she says, even if I could have a husband today, and I had a son, are you going to stick around and wait till they're grown? I mean, that's a very practical argument, isn't it? I mean, it makes sense. Okay. And she finally says, in the last part of verse 13, she says, my life, my life is too bitter for you to share because the Lord's hand has turned against me. And again, this is going to be important here in just a minute because Naomi is blaming God for her circumstances. She says, God has done this to me. This is God's fault. Almost like she's saying to Orpah and Ruth, she's saying, get away from me. God is attacking me and you're just going to be collateral damage. Go on, go back. Verse 14, they all weep again and Orpah gives in and she turns back both to her people and to her gods. She turns back. And what a missed opportunity for Naomi. Naomi had an opportunity to bring somebody into the covenant people with her. And she sent her away. Um, I read one commentary that was very critical of Naomi. But for just a moment, let's focus on Orpah. Um, should we, as we read this, should we be critical of Orpah? Should we think, boy, she blew it. And I'm going to say, yes, yes, she was so close, so close to making the best decision she could have possibly made. She was so close. She was going with her. She was insisting on going with her. But whenever she faced a little opposition, she turned away and trusted her own reason over trusting in a sovereign God who loves her. She was so close. And because she chose poorly, this is the last time we ever hear of Orpah in Scripture. She doesn't come up again. So... Should we be critical? Yes, but at the same time, no. There's one commentator named George Schwab, who I'm going to quote several times throughout this series in Ruth. Um, He says this. He says, This is a perfectly fitting and noble action. Her, being Orpah, her legal connection with Naomi is dissolved. She has no further obligations once Naomi has set her free. Did she do anything wrong? No, she she used reason. She thought, well, this makes sense. I'm going to turn back to my people and my gods. So, should we be critical? Yes and no. It was difficult, but she was so close. So close. And because she chose poorly, last time we hear of her in Scripture. But even while Naomi was trying to get away, what did Ruth do? She stuck with her. She stuck to her. Literally, in verse 14, it says that she clung to her. She was clinging to Naomi. This is the same verb that's used back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. You all know what happens in Genesis 2? The first wedding in the Bible. Adam and Eve are brought together and it says that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife or cleave to his wife if you're reading the King James, right? She's going to go stick with them. That's what this is. This is the same verb. She is stuck with Naomi. She says, I am not leaving you for anything. I am with you to the very end. And we get this incredible reply in verse 16. Verse 16, and this is beautiful. Like, just just hear this. She says, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not fall. Stop asking me to go back. For wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Naomi or Ruth, in a very real way, just said, look, Naomi, I am with you. And not just with you. I am with your people, the covenant people of Israel, and I am with your God. Yahweh, I'm with that God. She says, I'm sticking with you for everything, through everything. Pledge yourself to Naomi and to her people and to her God. And Ruth, what is happening here? She is converting to faith in the one true God. That's what's happening. She is devoting everything to God and his people. In verse 17, verse 17, she even commits her life, even asking for the Lord's punishment if she is to separate from Naomi. Like, she is devoted. Verse 18, Naomi gives up. She sees that Ruth is determined. It says that she stops, says that Naomi stops talking to her. Um, Some see this as Naomi giving her the cold shoulder, like, fine, I'm just going to stop talking to you and hope you go away. It's kind of like my kids, they pester me about something, and they just keep pestering and pestering and pestering, and finally I just ignore them and hope they go away. That's not what's happening here. Okay, what's happening here is there's an indication in the language that's like, Naomi's saying, fine, if you're coming with me, you're coming with me. I'm done arguing with you. You're coming with me then. So she gives up the argument. Um, Look, the truth is we see that sin, disbelief, unfaithfulness, 
what happens is it will often cause us to try to isolate ourselves. Um, oftentimes. But thank God for the faithful love of people who know the goodness of God. I'm very thankful for the roofs in my life. Really, the worst thing that we can do whenever we're struggling, um, whenever we have rebelled, the worst thing that we can do is isolate ourselves from other people, specifically from godly people. Um, We need those faithful people in our lives to call us back, to build us up, to be there in our time of weakness. We need those people. Um, I'll just tell you, like, I I remember a low point for me. um, I I didn't want anybody to know my sin, my shame, my guilt. I didn't want anybody to know it. And I kind of even said, look, I don't want you guys to be ashamed of me. And I confessed sin in front of my brothers. And where I thought that there would be condemnation, (laughs) it turned into actually something way better than that. And my brother's saying, no, we're with you. Um, We're going to stick alongside you. We're here for you. We want to help you. We want to encourage you. And I think that's what we find with Ruth. She says, I am with you. No matter what. Look, we need to avoid the temptation to isolate ourselves whenever we're struggling. What we need is faithful brothers and sisters to step up alongside us and say, I am with you no matter what. Be a Ruth. Um, Disbelief leads to disaster. It leads to isolation. Third thing it leads to is bitterness. Uh, Disbelief leads to bitterness. Um, This was already hinted at back in verse 13 when Naomi said, My life is too bitter for you to share. But now in verse 19, they arrive in Bethlehem and it says, When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited about their arrival and the local women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Now, Naomi's been gone for 10 years, right? So here she comes back into this small town. And by the way, Bethlehem, the only estimate I could find at this time was... um, Less than a 1,000 people, so think Mount City, think Oregon, think small town. Um, and that's kind of what she's walking back into, this small rural town of Bethlehem. And she's walking back in after she's been gone for a decade, and people look different. So she, they're saying, can this really be Naomi? Like, is she really coming back? Did you all know people change over a decade? Some of you laugh, some of you know that. I actually thought about trying to find a picture to illustrate this. Um, and I thought, okay, I'm just going to scroll back on my Facebook feed and find a picture from 10 years ago of my wife and I and show you how much we've changed. But then what I found is that my wife looks ex- exceptional still, so it really killed my, uh, killed my illustration. So um, anyway, so I thought, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't go that way. But you get the point. People change over a decade, right? People change over 10 years. So they come back in and say, is this really Naomi? Um, and here's Naomi with this foreign woman strolling into Bethlehem and everyone around town starts talking. Everyone, y'all get that? Like we live in a small town, y'all get that. Something happens, everybody knows about it in five minutes. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> yeah, everybody knows. So y'all get that. So here's Naomi coming back bearing her guilt and her shame after she fled from God's covenant people and God's promised land. And here she comes back, not only with no husband and without her sons, but now she's got this foreign widow tagging along with her. Y'all, this is not a good time to be Naomi. And they're saying, whenever she comes back in, can this really be Naomi? What they're saying is, can this be sweetness? Can this really be pleasant? Because that's what Naomi's name means. Can this be pleasantness? Is that who this is? To which Naomi replies in verse 20. She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitterness. Call me bitterness. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. And again, she's blaming God for her circumstances. Verse 21, she goes on. She says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty has afflicted me? Naomi has basically just said, don't call me pleasant, don't call me sweet. Instead, I am bitter and I am angry. God has removed all favor from me and God has afflicted me. Don't call me pleasant. Now, before you get too mad at Naomi, remember, she lost her husband, she lost her son, she lost her livelihood, she lost her stability, and now she's coming back to the gossip of this little town with this Moabite woman who won't leave her alone. And really, that's the emphasis of this, because if you look at the last verse of the chapter, it says that she came back with Ruth the Moabitess. You all catch that? She's not just identified as she came back with Ruth. No, it's Ruth the Moabitess. And she's given that title five times, and really what that is is just a reminder. It should draw our attention to the fact that she was an outsider who seemingly did not belong with the people of God. 
So she returns bearing this shame, guilt. I mean, how would you feel? Like, that doesn't sound like a lot of fun to me. Now, while I don't want to be super insensitive here, I would like to ask the question, is God really at fault for the circumstances facing Naomi? I would say no. Um, Really, they were brought on by her or her husband's poor decisions. They were brought on by their own poor decisions. And Now, again, is that always the case? Is it always our poor decisions that lead to our problems? No. Um, But oftentimes we do face the difficulties of our own problems. But even if we don't, even if it's not our own fault, we are going to face trials. We're going to face difficulty in this life. Uh, my, my brother and I had this discussion this week. I thought it was perfect because it aligns with this fantastic. We start talking about trials and struggles and, and all of that. And my brother called me. He's preaching in Cameron this week, um, Cameron, Missouri. So he's preaching down there this week. And he started asking me about the passage he was preaching. He's preaching from, for, or from James chapter 1. Um, and he asked me about that passage, and we talked about it for a while. And uh, James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, it says, No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Um, I thought it was fantastic that that aligns so well. He's tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. The truth is we tend to be bitter because we've caused problems for ourselves by not trusting in God's provision and his goodness. And that leads us to being bitter, blaming God even whenever it's really our own evilness that's brought us to where we are. It's our own sinfulness. Uh, There's a scholar named George Morrison who wrote, Nine-tenths of our unhappiness is selfishness and and is an insult cast in the face of God. Look, the truth is, we are often to blame for our own struggles. But oftentimes it leads us to, even whenever it is our fault, it leads us to bitterness. And we blame God, or we blame those around us saying, how could they do this? All the while, what we need to realize is God has actually forgiven us a tremendous debt. Whenever we focus on the debt God has forgiven, I think it leads us away from bitterness because we realize that no matter what we're facing, it's not as bad as what we deserve. The truth is, our disbelief leads us to blame God or causes us to be bitter with God and those around us. What we need to see is that it's really a result of our own sinfulness. Disbelief, unfaithfulness, it leads us to disaster, it leads us to isolation, it leads us to bitterness. So what? Well, I'm just going to ask, are you the one experiencing disaster because of your disbelief? Um, Look, I'm sure Elimelech and Naomi thought that Moab seemed like a great idea. I'm sure they thought it seemed like a good idea. They had food, they had water, it wasn't all that far away, we can come back any time. Like, it's just a little change. Is it really that big of a deal? But in the end, turning away from God and His provision, it brought them nothing but death and famine and destruction. Look, we all know people who are experiencing this, or you may be the person who experiences this, Do you just look around everywhere in your life and see nothing but death and destruction and chaos and hopelessness? It just seems like you can't catch a break. We all have seen that. Or are you the one who pushes brothers and sisters away because you don't want anyone to know your shame? Like, what was Naomi's motive for pushing these two young women away? We don't know ultimately, but we can get some clues from the text. And it seems to indicate that she was pushing them away because she didn't want people to know her sin. She didn't want people to know her shame. Are you the one that that is trying to hide your guilt? The one that's trying to hide as much as possible because that was Naomi. She's pushing everyone away at least as much as she could. But in the end, we can be thankful for the Ruth in our life and we must strive to be the Ruth in the lives of our brothers and sisters. The one who just won't go away. The one who says, I am with you to the very end because we share a God now who is greater than anything this world has. Like our God is greater. And if you're Naomi, stop pushing people away. Quit it. Like, God often works through his body, through our brothers and sisters around us. Stop pushing them away. Let them come and link arms with you and say, I am with you. I want to walk with you. I told you I'm very thankful because I had godly men and women in my life from the beginning. Like, I've had people that are there, even whenever I screwed it up so bad, they stepped in alongside me and said, we're with you. 
Be that person. Don't push those people away. That's what we need. We just read from 1 John today in Sunday school. We talked about how if God is love, then we'll love one another. Like if we know the love of God, it will drive us to loving one another. Love people. That's what Ruth did. So if you're the Ruth striving to stick with those who may not even want your help, I'm just going to encourage you, even when they try to push you away, don't give up. Love them anyway. Stick with them through thick and thin. Or are you just the one who is so bitter about the circumstances you face, whether it's self-inflicted or not, that you're just angry with God? Um, you know, I don't know if you've ever been there where you're just angry with God. Like, I'm just mad about it. Why is all of this happening? Um, I've been the person before who's, who said, I was once full, but now I'm empty. God, why are you letting all this happen to me? Um, Regardless of which of these you are, the bitter one, the one facing disaster, the one pushing people away, here's what I want to say to you because I believe this is what God's word says to you um, here in Ruth. First, take ownership for your position. Um, Take some ownership for your position. The truth is that you're a sinner. We've been telling telling our kids, like, look, the truth is you are a sinner. But do we realize that as adults? We've sinned. We have fallen short of God's glory. We are a part of the problem. We make mistakes again and again and again. Just like the book of Judges reminds us, like even when God does send somebody to us and we get back, oftentimes it's just a, just a little while before we're unfaithful again. Look, we mess it up. And the death and destruction we face is not God being the mean kid sitting at the top of an anthill with a magnifying glass. That's not what it is. Really, what we're doing is we're facing the consequences of sin, whether it's our own or those of somebody else. We face the consequences of sin, which is death. Consequences of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Our sin, your sin, brings the death and destruction we face. And we need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that we are a part of the problem. But second thing I want to show you here today is look at, look at verse 22. If you haven't put your Bible away, look at verse 22. It says, So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess, and Naomi came back to the land God had promised. She came back. And just to be clear, for Naomi to return to the land of Israel, that means that she is returning to the God of Israel in a very real way here in Ruth. Those two things are connected. She may have walked away from God and his land, but she's coming back to the land of God, to God's promised land, and to the God of the land. So in a very real way, she is returning to God. Actually, whenever it says that she returned, that word return, in a very, like, it could also be translated repent. Like she is repenting by returning. She is turning away from the things of the world and turning back to God and his people. She is repenting and turning back. She is turning. And this verse goes on and gives us a glimmer of hope here at the very end. She came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law Ruth the Moabitess, and they arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. I told you from the top that this ends with a glimmer of hope. And here it is. Where the chapter began with a famine, it ends with a harvest. It begins with death and destruction. It ends with this glimmer of hope. Just this little seed here where there is a harvest. The good news today is that regardless of where you are, when you repent, when you turn back to God by faith in Jesus, there is the hope of a harvest. There is hope. And I want to tell you today on the authority of God and his word that the death and destruction, the isolation and the bitterness that you face does not have to be the end of your story. There is something better. There is something better. Jesus came to make a way for you to have life. Not just, you know, not just something that resembles life. No, life. A real, it ends with a harvest. Like there is life. But it comes when we stop looking at fear, whenever we stop running from God and his people, whenever we stop focusing on the death and destruction and turn back to him. That's where we find the harvest. It's with him. So what I want to urge you to do today is to turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, I'm thankful for the example of Ruth. Um, Lord, and while I know in our time together studying this passage, I I know I've been pretty critical of Naomi. Um, Father, but I pray that you would help us to realize that when she had lost all hope, when she had nothing else to turn to, she did the only thing that she could do, which was turn back to you.
And Lord, what an awesome example. So Father, for those who, who are at their wits end, who don't know where else to go, Father, I pray that you would show yourself to them and say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I would give you rest. Lord, I pray that you would call them to yourself. Father, and I know that it's not just people who are non-believers. I know that there are people who have known you for decades, who look around and see nothing but death and destruction, chaos and hopelessness around their lives. Um, Lord, whether it's because of their sin or the sin in the world, Lord, it doesn't really matter. You're the answer. So, Father, I pray that they would cling to you. Lord, so open their eyes and show yourself to them, Lord. And I also want to pray for us as a church family that we wouldn't be content to be Orpah and turn away and walk back, Lord, but instead we would cling to those around us, that we would cling to our brothers and sisters. Um, Lord, you tell us in 1 John that if we know your love, then we love those, we love our brothers and sisters, we love those near us. So, Father, help us to know your love so that we can love those around us. Lord, and cling to them through thick and through thin. Um, God, I just pray that you would help us to be a Ruth and cling to those near us. Um, Lord, I'm thankful, though, that where this story begins with a famine, really the end of the book ends with the best hope that we could possibly possibly ask for. Where we see the line of the king, we see the line of Jesus starting to be formed here, Lord. And uh, as we turn to the New Testament, Lord, we're reminded that Jesus came as a result of Ruth's faithfulness. Uh, so, Father, I th I'm thankful that where this book starts with death and destruction, it ends with life. Father, I pray that you would remind us of that and that you would show us how to have life and abundant life, not just, not just at the end of the age that we talked about last week, but really, Lord, I pray that we would see that we could have life now by faith in Jesus. Um, Lord, help us to live faithfully, to walk faithfully, to, to follow you wherever you lead. Um, Lord, and I'm thankful that you provide that hope, the hope of a harvest, and we praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.